Well, good morning, church. It's good to see everybody this morning. I have begun a rather strange trend in 2017. I didn't realize it until this morning, but two out of three Sundays, I have carried what could be perceived as a weapon into the pulpit. Um, two weeks ago, I carried a, an arrow into the pulpit, and this morning I have a rather large stick that obviously is going to be an illustration for us later this morning. Uh, no need for alarm that the pastor has no desire to go postal on anybody. It just happened this way that uh, we've been in these places in the Word. But today we are going to talk about this issue of getting out the law. We're, this is a very familiar passage of Scripture. In fact, I would say Matthew 7-1 may be the most well-known Bible verse in our culture today. I mean, how often do you hear, judge not, lest you be judged? I mean, we hear this all the time. In fact, it's almost become a mantra in our culture. And we all know you're not supposed to judge. And we hear that all the time. And yet, that idea is ripped out of its context and made to mean something that it was never meant to mean. As I hope that you'll see this morning as we walk through this familiar passage of Scripture, we're talking in these days about biblical conflict resolution. The reality is there's nothing more uh, normal in our life on this planet than conflict. It comes as a result of, of sin and, and the division in relationships that happens as a result of sin. But conflict is a normal and regular part of our existence in this world. And yet many of us, myself included, grew up in such a way that we really didn't know how to deal with conflict. For some, we grew up as as conflict avoiders where we saw conflict as something to be scraped under the rug, to be avoided at all costs. If there was a conflict, we just don't look that person in the eye. We avoid them in Walmart. Conflict was something to be avoided and not dealt with. For others, they grew up more as conflict aggressors who conflict comes. Come on, man. I mean, they're ready to take out the beating stick. It's, it's time to go at this thing. But, you know, we're going to deal with conflict the old-fashioned way, so to speak. And we grew up with that kind of a mentality. But in between those two, between the conflict avoiders and the, and the conflict aggressors, we find this biblical pathway for dealing with conflict that's known as peacemaking. And once again this morning, I want to encourage you, if you... I want to learn more about this. There's a great book available over here on our bookshelf called Peacemaker. I'm not a book salesman, but this is a great biblical book, not a long read, but so practical in dealing with this issue of conflict and how do we approach the interpersonal issues that we encounter in life in a biblical, God-honoring, Christ-exalting, gospel-centered way. So here's the question of the day. Actually, before that, let me, let me, for those of you that weren't here last week, where we began this series is so important. We began with a message called Glorifying God in Our Conflicts. And, and the whole idea of that message was, let's start thinking about conflict, whether it's in the church, in our marriages, in our workplaces. Let's start thinking about it from a different starting place. Instead of starting where we usually start, we get uh, rubbed the wrong way by someone, we enter into a conflict with another individual, and the first place that my mind goes is how stupid that other person is, right? That's where most of us begin in conflict is 
we begin to focus in on what the other person did wrong, where they, what stupid things they said. And if they would just see things my way, then everything would be okay. We, we automatically focus in on the other person. And yet the Bible is leading us to a place of recognizing that when conflict happens, when, the, when we get rubbed the wrong way, when, when there's division in relationships, that the first thing that we need to ask is what's God doing here? And how can I please and honor God in the midst of this situation? And like I said last week, I believe this would radically change the way that we do conflict or the way that those of us as conflict avoiders don't do conflict. I believe it would radically change the way that we walk through conflict if we were to ask from the very beginning, what is God doing here? And how can I please and honor Him in this situation? So that's where we were last week. But the key question today, kind of building on that, is how then can I honor Christ? How can I honor Christ in my relationships in the midst of conflict by recognizing my own part in the problem? How can I honor God in my relationships by recognizing and dealing with my own contribution to the conflict? So that's the key question for today. How can I honor Christ by taking responsibility for my part in interpersonal conflicts? Now, some of you in the room are going, okay, so when are we going to get to talking about the other person and how stupid they're being? Okay? We're going to kind of get there next week. Okay, so if you're waiting for that, come back next week and then we'll discuss how do you deal with the other party and how stupid they're being. But we have to begin with what's God doing? And then we move into asking, what's my part in this? So let's talk about that today. So Jesus, Jesus says in Matthew 7, 1, one of the most well-known verses in all of Scripture today, judge not that you be not judged. You've all heard this verse, right? It's quoted all over our culture today in various ways, but ripped out of its conflict, out of its context. So what was Jesus actually saying here in Matthew 7, 1? Judge not that you be not judged. Be careful of the way you judge others and the measure that you use against them. That's the same way that it's going to be measured out to you. What is Jesus really saying? Well, it'd be really helpful here if the Greek word for judge meant something very specific that would help us in this instance, but it's a word that can mean a variety of things. The Greek word there for judge not is the Greek word krino. Sometimes when the word krino is used in the Bible, sometimes it means a condemning, condemning type of judgment. A, this is us casting or passing judgment upon somebody. Many times it's used of God's judgment of us and our sin. But sometimes when the word krino is used in, in the New Testament... It doesn't mean a condemning, passing judgment upon somebody. Instead, sometimes it means just making an honest and, and wise and discerning kind of judgment that's needful and necessary in the situation. 
And so there's two types of judgments here. One is a condemning judgment, and one is a discerning judgment. And my argument's going to be here, and I believe it's a very, very biblical argument, that while Jesus is saying, judge not in a condemning way, there is an affirmation of the kind of judgment that is discerning and wise. But in this context, he just uses this word that can mean either. So we have to use the context to determine what Jesus is saying. Because some would take this and say, Jesus is outlawing any kind of judgments. And folks, this is our culture right now. Judge not lest you be judged. And our culture means pass no judgment in any regards whatsoever. Mind your own business, do your own thing. Don't call anybody's sin to account. Don't even address sin. Don't even talk about sin. In fact, let's just write sin out of the scriptures altogether lest we judge and then be judged ourselves. That's not what Jesus is saying. In fact, even in this context, flip down four or five verses. When we look at verse six, right after what Matt read this morning comes Matthew seven, verse six. Jesus says, do not give dogs what is holy and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now he's not talking about Literal pearls and literal pigs here. This is a metaphor. Okay? He's saying that there are holy things that God has entrusted to his children. And if you squander those with unholy people who do not want them, do not desire them, and in fact will reject them outright, it's like you're throwing pearls to pigs. Let me give you an illustration of what I think Jesus is saying. Uh, at our house, each of our kids have bear buddies. Our, actually, our sons is a little dog, but, but these are like their most prized possessions in the world. These are the things that when they're left at Mamaw's house, they have to get mailed back to us. That has happened, by the way, because they can't live without bear buddy. It's, that bear buddy is the, is the, is the uh, thing that they go to sleep with at night. I mean, these are just the prized possessions. What do you think would happen if I took one of my children's bear buddies and gave it to the family dog as a toy? Bad stuff, right? Yeah, that's right. Woe to you, man. You have now crossed an uncrossable line. There is conflict in the family like there's never been before. And no father in this room is going to do that and expect to live. Because then mama's going to come into the picture and destroy you, right? And so, why is that though? Because there's something precious there that I have given to one that doesn't know how to treat it. The family dog just going to make that a chew toy. And it's going to be destroyed. And so what Jesus is saying is there's... There are particular things that have been given to us in the Christian life. Let me give you one example. The Lord's Supper is a great example. That's why when we share the Lord's Supper together as a church, that's why I will say, for those of you that don't yet have a relationship with Jesus Christ, we're asking you to abstain from this and not share with us in this table. It's because of what the table represents. The table represents something holy. Not that we're holier than thou or better than those that aren't invited to the table yet, but what we are saying is there's something holy here, there's to use a really bad illustration to you. There's a bear buddy here that needs to be honored, that needs to be protected, that needs to be maintained. 
And we want to be able to invite you to this table, but we can't yet because you don't yet know the king of the table. You don't yet know the master of the house. And so for us to invite you into that before you know Christ is to extend something to you that you don't really, you aren't ready to receive just yet. This doesn't mean, by the way, that we don't proclaim the gospel to those who are lost. It doesn't mean that we don't share with them how they can know Christ as their Savior. But it does mean that there are holy things that have been given to us that we would be wrong in extending to those who are just going to outright reject them. This is why Jesus, when he sends them out two by two to proclaim the gospel, you remember that in the book of Matthew? He sends them out two by two and he says, if you go into a certain village and they reject your message, they continually refuse to listen to the gospel that I'm sending you with. They don't want to hear the message of the kingdom. Then what are you supposed to do? Just keep preaching, right? No, he says, if they continue to reject your message, then you shake the dust from your feet and you go on to the next town. The shaking the dust from your feet was a kind of judgment against them. Not, again, not a condemning judgment, but a discerning judgment that was saying this. If these folks aren't going to listen, we can either waste our time continuing to try to preach to them, or we can shake the dust off our feet and move on to the next town where hopefully there will be those who listen. It's a discerning kind of judgment that's necessary, and, and I hope you see the difference. So let's talk about some of the ins and outs here. First of all, we want to say this, that reconciliation requires rejecting judgmentalism. That's the context of Matthew 7, 1. It's not writing out all judgments altogether. It's saying we are refusing to live in a judgmental type way, refusing to play God. I think David Pallison did a great job of describing this kind of judgment that we can fall into. He said, we judge others because we literally play God. And this is heinous. Who are you when you judge? None other than a God wannabe. Isn't that a great phrase? None other than a God wannabe. We play the self-righteous judge in the many kingdoms that we establish. So there's this kind of judgmentalism, this passing judgment upon others, this condemning others, this, this judgmentalism that is not what we were made for. Again, we're drawing a line here between condemning judgments and discerning judgments. And I would say this, first of all, there are judgments we must make as Christians. We are living in a culture that says make no judgments whatsoever. Don't make judgments about gender. Don't make judgments about lifestyle. Don't make judgments about what the Bible calls sin. Just accept everyone as they are and don't try to deal or change or do anything with or to anyone whatsoever. Just live your own life. Do your own thing. Here's the problem, church. If we buy into the cultural mentality related to these things, we are essentially saying to those who persist in their sinful ways and are living apart from the gospel, we're essentially saying to them, you might as well go to hell because we don't care. Now again, walk the fine line. We are not, as believers in Jesus Christ, called to walk in a condemning way where we go around with our picket signs and condemn people. That's not what we're called to But we are called to address sin because it's like a cancer. Wouldn't you want your doctor to tell you if you had a cancer that could take your life? What if your doctor sat back and went, you know what? 
I don't want to, I don't want to tell this person about their cancer because they might be offended. And then six months later, when it becomes terminal, you say, why didn't you tell me? They go, well, I didn't want to offend you by telling you that you had a terminal cancer. Most of us in this room would say, I think I've got a malpractice lawsuit coming your way. Because you knew that there was something in my life that was going to kill me. You had even promised to do well and, 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 and to protect life and your Hippocratic Oath. And yet, and yet, you didn't tell me about my cancer. Folks, sin is a cancer that will kill. Sin is a cancer that will kill. And if we, as the people of God, don't address that, then we are as good as saying to others, I don't care enough about you to see you come to the Lord. John Stott here, he says, Jesus does not tell us, it's talking about Matthew 7, when he does not tell us to cease to be men by suspending our critical powers which help to distinguish us from animals, but rather to renounce the presumptuous ambition to be God by setting ourselves up as judges. Do you see the difference? A lot of the difference here is grounded in our attitude. In this judging, am I seeking to elevate myself to make my point, to win the argument, Or am I seeking the best interests of the other person? We'll come back to that thought before we finish this morning. To sum it up, I'd say this. We are called to discernment, but we are not called to disparagement. And a lot of that's a hard attitude. In talking with others about their sin issues, which Jesus is going to address here before we finish Verse 5, in talking with others about their sin issues, it ought to be out of a heart that is burdened, that there is a cancer there that's going to bring death in relationships, that's going to bring death into their life, that's going to bring destruction. We ought to be burdened over that and address those issues out of a heart that's heavy over the effects of sin. This is why Jesus looks at the Pharisees and says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees. And he goes through this list of woes. And I don't see these lists of woes coming just in this condemning, you're going to go to hell kind of way. But I believe he's saying, there's a blindness in you. There's a blindness in you. He says, you're like whitewashed tombs. You look really pretty on the outside, but inside you're full of death. He was concerned for them. Concerned for the very folks, by the way, who were primarily responsible for sending him to the cross. Let's shift gears for one. James 4.1. What causes, what causes quarrels and causes fights among you? What's the cause of conflict? And, and James answers it so particularly. Is it not, he says, I love that he asks this as a question. Is it not that your passions are at war within you? Say, well, what does that mean? Well, read it in its context and you find this. Is it not that you wanted something and didn't get it? Like I said last week, inside all of us, there is still a petulant two-year-old that when he doesn't get his way, is going to have a throwdown. 
Now we've become more mature about it. We mask it better than we used to as two-year-olds. We, we, instead of throwing a, throwing a fit, we've learned how to just avoid people in Walmart. We've learned how to make sideways comments. We, we've learned how to do conflict in, in a more politically correct way. But within us, there's still this petulant two-year-old that when I don't get my way, when somebody says no or doesn't give me what I want, I'm going to throw down. And that's your pastor. And that spirit is within every one of us. That's the nature of sin. As long as you're going my way and doing what I want you to do, man, two thumbs up. But you say no, we get in conflict with one another, and the two-year-old comes out. You say, oh, not me. Examine your heart as Jesus is directing us here, and you'll see this great truth there. All right, verse 2. We have to move a little faster if we're going to get through this today. Verse 2, there's an idea here that rehearsing the golden rule often renders the golden result. Let me tell you what I mean there. Rehearsing the golden rule often renders or produces the golden result in our lives. So what's the golden rule? Look look to verse 12 of this chapter and you'll find it. Uh, Verse 12 is really a summary of the Sermon on the Mount. That's what we're in the middle of in Matthew chapter 7. Starting in Matthew chapter 5 with the Beatitudes, Jesus' blessing on those who are, and it says, blessed are the peacemakers. That's what we're talking about here in this series, for they'll be called the sons of God. But this long sermon, Matthew chapter 5 through 7, is really summarized in verse 12 of chapter 7. Let's look at it. It's called the Golden Rule. Let's read it out loud. So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Treat others as you would want to be treated, right? How many of you have heard this before? I mean, many of us, when we were, that was one of the primary tools that my parents would use, especially with my sister and I, when we got into conflict, hey, you need to treat her as you would want to be treated. You wouldn't want her stealing your toys, would you? And we still use it with our kids. How would you want your little brother to respond to you when this happens? And then using this, and it's a great application of it. But what we find is that when we walk according to this, when we walk according to this summary statement known as the golden rule, where we seek to treat others in the way that we would want to be treated, here's the golden result that comes most of the time. Again, I said most of the time. This is, a, this is a guiding principle, not a, an every time promise. The golden result is this, that people will usually treat us as we treat them. How many of you have found that to be true? People will generally treat us as we treat them. So if you're nasty and ugly and have a critical spirit or constantly talking bad about others, what do you find? People tend to be nasty toward you, critical of you, and talking about you behind your back. And so there's this place where we generally find that people treat us as we treat them. When you go to lunch this afternoon, if you go to a place where there's a a waiter or a waitress, please, please, I'm begging of you, be especially kind and generous. If you go to Miguel's and they're backed up out the door, show grace. You talk to waiters and waitresses, here's what you'll find. Most of them despise working Sunday afternoons. You know why? Church people. We're horrible tippers and we're grumpy. Now maybe we're grumpy because we went to church and got our toes stepped on and we're still processing that and we take it out on the waiter or the waitress. But surely we ought to realize that we ought to be especially gracious. We ought to be especially grace-filled as we enter into those moments. 
where someone is serving us, even if their service isn't exactly what we would want it to be? How would you want someone to respond to you if you weren't exactly at the top of your game as a waiter? See, that'll change the way that we relate to others. And people will usually, generally, typically treat us as we treat them. So we have to begin to examine ourselves, especially as we think about conflict. Another principle as we move forward, the Bible speaks about this idea of overlooking an offense. Let me give you a definition of that. Overlooking an offense means deliberately deciding not to dwell on it. This is a decisive decision. I'm going to refuse to allow this conflict, this being rubbed in the wrong way. I'm going to refuse to allow what this other person did to have any bearing on our relationship. I'm going to overlook it. Now, now the difference is this is not scraping under the rug. Some people say, well, that sounds just like the conflict avoider who just wants to scrape under the rug and doesn't want to really deal with things. It's, not, it's a very different thing. The conflict avoider is passively choosing to allow the conflict to continue and pretending as if it's not a big deal. This is different. This is an active choice on the part of the overlooker saying, I refuse to allow that offense to have any bearing on my relationship with that person. I'm going to actively overlook that. And you say, how do you do that? First of all, by the grace of God, you do that. It's grounded in the idea of the gospel where it says that God does not treat us as our sins deserve. That he has refused to treat us as our sins deserve and overlooking our sin did not mean that God just swept it under the rug. Overlooking our sin meant that he took the full pain of it upon himself at the cross. So overlooking is an active gospel-centered response to the offense of others. In fact, Proverbs 19.11 says, Good sense makes one slow to anger. That's a great way for us to be. And it is, his, it is his glory to overlook an offense. So there's something being elevated here. The overlooking of offenses is being elevated. And yet I want to tell you, church, there are times when you cannot overlook an offense. You say, well, how do I know the difference? Some of us tend to be mountain out of the molehill people. We don't ever want to overlook any offense. Somebody cuts us off in traffic and we want to send them to the grave. Okay, and, and some of us in this room, you're shaking your head because you know that's you. You're more the conflict aggressor and you're going to deal with every little conflict and make sure that everybody knows when they rubbed you the wrong way and you're going to never overlook any offense whatsoever because most of that is, is based in a wrong understanding of our rights. We like to use our rights in the wrong way. So how do I know when a conflict can be overlooked and how do I know when it has to be addressed? Let me give you two simple principles. You may want to jot these down, but just two simple principles for knowing when a conflict needs to be overlooked, when it can be overlooked, and when it needs to be addressed. First one is this. Is that conflict continuing to build a relational wall between you and that other person? Is it continuing 
to cause you to have ill feelings toward that person? Is it continuing to be a thing when you see them in Walmart, you kind of go head toward ducking to the other aisle? Is it continuing, even when you are face-to-face with them, is it continuing to be something in your heart that's causing you angst toward that person? If it's not, if it's something that you can overlook, praise God for that. That's a thing that glorifies God but it doesn't glorify God when we pretend as if we're over a conflict, but we're really not. We're just sweeping it under the rug until it comes out and rears its ugly head as it decays and begins to stink in that relationship. So is it continuing to build a relational wall between you and another person? And the second question you want to ask about, is this a conflict I can overlook, is, is this conflict continuing to be a hindrance to others, continuing to be hindrance to others in terms of their relationship with God. For instance, perhaps a brother or sister has has engaged in some kind of sinful behavior that's not only affecting your relationship with them, but it's affecting how others are seeing Christ. They profess to be a Christian, but they continue in the kinds of behaviors that are hindering others from coming to Christ or that are hindering others in, in their relationship. So it's beyond just the two of you. And maybe you'd say, well, there's not necessarily so much of a relational wall between us now, but it is continuing to hinder others. That's not something that I would encourage you to overlook. It's something that requires being addressed. And so there's where we come to the speck and the plank. Now, I'm going to move through this fairly quickly, but I want you to see what Jesus is saying in verses 3 through 5. Let's, let's read it again. Jesus says, so why do you see the speck, small, seemingly insignificant particle in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log, the plank, the two-by-four that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own? You hypocrite. What's a hypocrite? It's someone whose practice doesn't match his profession. He says he's one thing, but he lives in a completely different fashion. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So what's Jesus doing here? He's engaging in what's known as hyperbole. It's the kind of thing where somebody says, I'm hungry enough to eat a horse. Now, you're not going to eat a literal horse. It's hyperbole. You're just saying, I'm really, really hungry. And that's what Jesus is doing here with this, with this kind of silly story. It's this picture of a dude who's, who sees in the eye of his friend that he has a little piece of sawdust there or something that's it's in, it's in his eye, and he's going to remove it. But he has in his own eye this giant plank. I mean, it's utterly ridiculous, right? Like, why are you worried about the little piece of sawdust in your brother's eye if you've got this going on? You've got bigger problems, right? But see, some people have taken Jesus' words here and they said, you know what? You don't ever need to worry about the speck in your brother's eye because you've got your own plank. You've got your own deal. But is that what Jesus said? Did Jesus say... Don't worry about the speck because you've got your plank. It's not what he said, church. And so let's look at what Jesus actually said. First of all, repenting of the plank must precede removing of the speck. 
For repenting of the plague must proceed removing the speck. That's why we say, as soon as you enter into conflict, asking God, what are you doing here? And how can I honor and please you? And the second thing you want to look at is, how have I contributed to this conflict? Now, there's many times when we look at conflict and, we, and we're so tempted to say, well, it's all the other person's fault. If they hadn't been so stupid, we wouldn't be having this conflict. If they hadn't stolen from me or lied to me or cheated me, if they hadn't done what they did, we wouldn't be in conflict. It's all their fault. Isn't that where we go? And yet, Jesus is encouraging us to consider our own plank. What does he mean? First of all, I'd say this. Planks can be both actions and attitudes. Here's where it gets hairy. Sometimes the plank is an action. Sometimes it's somebody lied to you and you went out and gossiped about them. Sometimes it's somebody stole something from you and you went out and did all you could to steal back from them to get revenge. Sometimes it's an action. But many times, this is my own experience, in many times and instances, the plank is not so much an action as it is an attitude of the heart. That the plank is that I am looking at the one who wronged me and the plank is that my heart is not bent toward reconciliation, it's bent toward revenge. That my desire is not to restore the relationship, but to be done with that person. And you think about why is that a plank? Why is that something that, that keeps us from reconciliation? And here's why. Imagine what it would have been like if that had been God's attitude toward us. If he had looked at us in our sin and said, that is enough, I'm going to be done with them. Forget the cross. Forget Christ coming as the Redeemer. They rebelled against me. They sinned against me. They chose to engage in open conflict with me, and I'm done. But he didn't do that, did he? We praise God for that in the vertical relationship. We praise God for that. But then in our horizontal relationships, we are so quick to allow attitudes to remain in our heart because we feel perfectly justified. Now, would God have been justified in condemning us? You better bet you. God would have been perfectly justified in condemning us, and yet He chose not to. So how then can we, as those who've been redeemed by Christ, how then can we hold something against a brother or sister in a condemning way, playing God in their life, when God has not treated us that way? That's what Jesus said when he meant, forgive and you'll be forgiven. And again, sometimes that's overlooking an offense and just moving on. Sometimes, sometimes that means actively addressing the hurt that took place. Because if we don't, so often that plank grows into a place called bitterness. Ken Sandy in The Peacemaker, he says this about bitterness. He said a negative perspective can, can lead to bitterness. And here's how he describes that. 
Bitterness which is characterized by dwelling on the hurt and thinking how little you deserve it. How many of you have been in that place before? I think most of us in this room could say, yeah, I've been there before. Dwelling on the hurt and your focus is, man, I didn't deserve that. Think what it would have been like if that had been the attitude of Jesus toward us. They made me go to the cross. I didn't deserve that. They piled all of their sin upon me. I didn't deserve that pain. What if our Lord had chose to walk in a way of bitterness rather than a way of blessing? There would be no redemption for us. But it was because the attitude of Christ was bent toward blessing, because it was bent toward reconciliation, because it was bent toward reconciling us to God and restoring us to right relationship with Him. It was because the heart of Christ was bent toward reconciliation that you have salvation in His name. Never forget that. Never forget that. And allow that truth of the gospel to creep into every other relationship in your life. And so we are a people who refuse to treat others as their sins deserve because God's not treated us as our sins deserve. And again, we're not talking about scraping things into the rug dealing with what needs to be dealt with, talking to those that we're in conflict with when an offense can't be overlooked. And I'll say this, church. It is high time for us. It is high time for us to stop talking about each other and start talking to each other. To be willing to have hard conversations The gospel itself is a hard conversation that God had with us when he said, guess what? Your sin is a cancer that's going to kill you. That's not pleasant news. You're deserving of my wrath. That's not pleasant news. Before you can get to the good news of how Christ died for you and has restored you to God, before you can get to that, you have to have the hard conversation with God. I'm a sinner deserving of your judgment. And God has not passed over that conversation in sharing the gospel with us. And so when we engage in conflicts, it means looking to God, examining our own hearts, and then going to our brothers and sisters and having a hard conversation. So why? Well, first of all, because the plank and the speck can both cause blindness. You see, for those who would say, you just need to ignore the speck in your brother's eye because you've got the plank in your own, and using that as a justification for not having the hard conversation, for not dealing with conflict, for not going to your brother or sister to be reconciled, for those who would use the plank as a justification, look at what Jesus says in verse 5. Don't miss this, church. You hypocrite. First, take the log, take the plank out of your own eye, and then, notice the causative relationship here, and then, as a due result of you've removed that your sinful action or attitude, you confess that to God, you are, your heart is now clean before the Lord, and then what? And then you can just ignore the speck, right? I think on a rare occasion that actually does happen because then you realize 
hey, that speck that I thought was so important is really something that can just be overlooked. It's really not a big deal. I was making a mountain out of a molehill. And I see that clearly now because the log's no longer there. But other times, it's then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. As Matt said so well, eye surgery is a delicate thing. If I go to the optometrist and he comes at me with a hammer and a screwdriver, dude, I'm getting out of there. I'm not going back to that guy because this is a sensitive organ that I don't want somebody coming at me with a hammer and a screwdriver trying to fix something that's wrong with my eye. And neither would you. But sometimes we come at our brothers and sisters seeking to remove a speck and we come at it with a hammer and a screwdriver. And we do more damage than there even was there before. But don't forget, both the plank and the speck can cause blindness. And so both need to be removed. But we do it graciously. As we're going to talk about next week, for those of you who are saying, okay, when are we going to get to the actual conflict? We're going to get there next week. We do it with gentleness. We do it with superabounding grace. We do it with a refusal to treat others as their sins deserve. We do it ever so carefully. Think about someone who is performing eye surgery, who's removing cataracts, who's doing that laser eye surgery that's so becomes so popular. It's a very delicate procedure. That's the way that we want to address the speck. Let me give you an illustration. One last point, and then we'll finish for the morning. I think there's a great illustration in 2 Samuel chapter 12. I might just drop that down. 2 Samuel chapter 12. You remember King David, king over Israel, the greatest king that Israel had ever known, golden age type king. I mean, he is the man as far as kings of Israel. Most of them were wrecks anyway. But David, for the most part, called a man after God's own heart. He's the guy who slayed Goliath. He led Israel into the greatest season that they had ever known as a nation. And yet, David sinned horribly against God. One particular afternoon, he was out on his deck and he looked across the way and saw a beautiful woman bathing on her rooftop. Now it's questionable as why that was going on in the first place, but he saw this beautiful woman, he desired this beautiful woman, and he took this beautiful woman for himself. Her name was Bathsheba and her husband's name was Uriah. A short time later, to cover up his indiscretion with Bathsheba, he ordered for Uriah to be put on the front lines of the army so that his life would be taken, he would be snuffed out, and David's sin could be covered up. And he could take Uriah's wife, Bathsheba, as his own. And he did so and thought that he'd gotten away with it. And you would hope a man after God's own heart there's going to be this major confession and repentance and revival is going to come. No, he covered it up all the way around. No one was the wiser until God sent the prophet Nathan to come visit the king one day. And Nathan comes in in 2 Samuel chapter 12 and he begins telling King David a story. He said, King, did you know that there's a man in your kingdom who is very wealthy? But he has a neighbor 
who was very poor and only had one lamb, one little ewe lamb to his name. Now, in those days, in many, many ways, uh, wealth was measured in terms of your livestock. So this wealthy man has flocks and herds, and this, little, this poor man just has one little ewe lamb that he loves so dearly. It was all he had in the world. And the wealthy man had some visitors from out of town that came to his home to visit. In those days, hospitality was everything. And so he's got to prepare them a meal. But rather than taking one of his own lambs and slaughtering it for them to share dinner together, he instead goes next door and steals the poor man's lamb. He slaughters it and puts it out on the table for his guests. What do you think about that, King? Let's look at David's response. 2 Samuel chapter 12, it says, Then David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. That's probably an understatement. He is burning hot. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, that's an oath statement. He's saying, he's saying, on my life, here's what needs to happen. The man who has done this deserves to die. And he shall restore the lamb fourfold because he did this thing and because he had no pity, because he showed no mercy, because there was no grace. He ought to die. And Nathan, I believe, pointed the finger at David and simply said what? You are the man. You're the man, King. God put you on this throne and gave you authority over all of his people. And you already had wives. Even though it was God's intention for there to be but one, God's allowed you to have wives. But you took this man's one wife. Much worse than the guy in the story who took a little ewe lamb and slaughtered it for his friends from out of town. You took your eyes, wife, and then you went even farther and you took his life. And you covered it up. You are the man. Do you see the plank in 2 Samuel chapter 12? And before we hammer down on David, let me just say, church, this spirit is alive and well in us. We are quick to condemn as David was while there is abundant sin reigning and ruling in our hearts. We are quick to point the finger at others and to put their sin on a pedestal while we are trying to conceal our own sin under the rug. And the Word of God is saying to us, there is a speck that needs to be removed that is causing spiritual blindness in your brothers and sisters, but you cannot address that until you deal with the plank. And so David responds to this episode with Psalm 51, one of the greatest repentance psalms that's ever been written. It's powerful. You might just jot that down. Psalm 51 is a beautiful psalm of repentance. This moment when Nathan said, you are the man, it struck David to the heart. It struck him to the heart. His, it was as if his heart was peeled back for all to see. And then there was this outflowing of confession and repentance. And yes, there were still lingering consequences because of his sin. But God renewed and restored him in a way that is so utterly beautiful. The same way that I believe he does in the heart of every person that comes to Christ by repentance and faith. By the way, let me say this. It's the gospel 
that calls us to repentance and faith. It's the gospel that calls us to deal with the plank so that we can deal with the speck. That calls us to ask God to open up and show us what's in our hearts so that we can address in a gracious and gentle and Christ-honoring way the sin that we see in the lives of others. Please, church, don't fall into this lie that the speck should not be addressed in your brother's eye because of the plank in yours. That was never Jesus' intention. He said, allow God to do eye surgery, spiritually speaking, in you so that you might see clearly to remove this speck. So how do we do that? I think we all know 1 John 1, 9. If you don't, this is where it's at. <coughs> if we say we have no sin, if we say there is no plank, I'm perfectly justified, they were perfectly wrong. <coughs> By the way, if you really are honest about the conflicts you experience, that's never really the case. Even if it's just I've harbored something in my heart against that person, that needs to be confessed. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in He said this is a truth issue. It's a reality issue. But if we, here's the promise, if we confess our sins, the idea of confessing is to agree with God about our sin, to agree that it's heinous, that it's hideous, that it's been dividing us from God and from one another. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us. There's a great word, to cleanse us. As you would cleanse an eye from things that would cause blindness, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Not allowing any impurity to remain. And then when that happens, we then have the God-appointed opportunity to go to a brother and sister and help them in the cleansing of their spiritual eyes as well. To help them to see what they're not seeing. To help them to deal with what they're not dealing with. To help them to get that cancer of sin out of their lives as well. 